making a promise to you. And you're going to have to choose whether to trust the promise or not trust the promise. I promise to you that in an envelope underneath one of the chairs in this room, there is a £10 note. And uh, all you have to, res- to do to receive that £10 note is to believe and trust in the promise that I have just stated. Do you believe me? There's a promise. Have a look. Someone, come on, someone find it, please. It is there. The promise is real, okay? Look. Karen, look. Karen, dig deeper. Find the undeserved gift of grace if you can. Or I'm going to get it, okay? That check, well done. Oh, look at that. Hold it up, Karen. There we go. It's a gift of grace. It's undeserved. Okay. We'll turn off the tape. I want my £10 back at the end. Okay. Now, here's here's the other one, okay? I've got uh, three bits of Lego. Duplo, or whatever you call it. Now, if you can juggle these, okay, for 15 seconds, you can have the contents of this envelope. Now, we're not going to try that, because I'm sure there's some... There is someone... I I can do it just, all right. All right? Now, what's the difference? Okay? One is conditional. There's There's a law placed on one, isn't there? You have to juggle. You have to work to receive the contents of this envelope. Uh, What is a matter of faith, though, isn't it? It's an undeserved gift. All you had to do is believe in the promise, and you would receive it. It was undeserved. It was a gift of grace. So one is a matter of faith. One is a matter of law, or or, or promise and law. Uh, Grace and law, they're two different ways of something, if you like, coming to you. But is law... Opposed to promise or grace? Is law opposed to promise? Well, is the law of God opposed to the promises of God? That is the real question at the heart of this passage today in verse 21. And we see Paul's response. Look at it. If you can, verse 21, he immediately goes, absolutely not. But you're thinking, well, they do seem opposed, don't they? You know, promise... That gift of, of just receiving an, an undeserved gift of grace and, and law where you've got to do something. They, they seem mutually opposed, don't they? And the question is, can they coexist? There's certainly a tension there, isn't it? And some might even argue, as you read all the commentaries on this, that, that there seems to be a contradiction, in fact, that we trust God's word and we, we recognise that that is not the case. It's a difficulty but not a contradiction. Because we see both. We see both in the, in the church and we see both in the kind of the wider way we think in our world as well. So you might look around various churches and someone might emphasise this a bit more. The law, if you like. And you might call that kind of church a fundamental church. I put down there at the beginning this kind of fundamental versus liberal there. Some emphasise though the love, the grace, the promise And you might call that kind of church a bit more liberal, if you like. 
But surely you can't have both. Uh, it's, either, it's either law or, or kind of love, law or promise. Moral standards, meeting, getting up to a line, juggling all you can to be right with God, or it's a reception of grace through a promise and faith. So you go to a, a kind of more fundamental church and it, the message there is that, that God has a law, he has a standard and if you don't meet those kind of standards, well what happens? If you don't juggle enough for God, you'll be punished. The message of the liberal church, which is much more prevalent in our country, is that God is, is ultimately loving and therefore well, everyone's welcome. Oh, there'll be no one that judges. And the only people who are ever going to get rejected from that kind of church are the people that judge. And throughout church history, there have been both in sort of both camps, if you like. Lots of kind of fundamental law, kind of, you must do that, otherwise you get... Or lots of liberal churches as well. All different guises of churches. And one says, if you don't believe and, and obey, you will be, well, you will only know God's eternal punishments. And the other says, well, there's none of that. It's all love. We're all loved. There's no judgment. It, it, there's no law in a sense. See, you can, go to, you can go to either one of those types of churches, but you can't go to both. They're, they seem completely different kind of views, don't they, of way of getting to God. One, you just receive an undeserved gift, and one, you've got to kind of work your way to God. The Church of Love says, well, love leads to kind of a freedom, a choice and acceptance. The Church of Law, uh, the, the fundamental church, says, it kind of, it, they're saying, oh, well, if you do this and you do that, that will lead to an ordered world, a moral world, a good world in their eyes. And either way, you say either the law is the absolute or love is the absolute. But they seem opposed, don't they? And at that point, you've got to say, well, that's why there's so many, so many commentators say, is Paul confused here in verse 21? Now, we don't have many churches that kind of just teach law in this country because for centuries, our culture has kind of been quite revolted by that way of teaching and has reacted against that. Sadly, many people in the name of God throughout church history have done some pretty awful things trying to apparently uphold his law and his standards. We think of the Crusades. Now, we generally live in a very liberal culture uh, where there's a lot of liberal churches uh, and they've reacted against that kind of thinking. Now, many of those churches, the absolute is just love. God is love. And all expressions of thought and lifestyle are therefore accepted and tolerated and even encouraged as expressions of freedom under God's love. And as a result, what we see in our country very often is just a, a relative kind of morality. Oh yeah, if it feels right for you, off you go. That's absolutely fine. And that is liberal thinking. And that is the liberal churches. It's all love and it's no law. And it's a big reaction against the kind of the fundamental law-keeping, law-teaching churches. Uh, and they are all love and no they're all law and no love. So what do we do? When we get to verse 21, is the, is the law of God opposed to the gracious, loving promises of God? And you kind of go, well, surely you can't have both. They seem like opposites. Verse 21, is it just nonsense? 
Well, let me just throw you back to some of the things that Jesus said on Sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 17, for example, he says, I've not come to abolish the law, but rather, he says what? He says, I've come to fulfill it. Also, Paul, in, in the book of Galatians, we've been looking at so far, he's not been critical of the law itself, has he? Rather, he's been critical of those who've been teaching that, the, that in the law, in by doing works of the law, in juggling for God, if you like, we can be saved. That's his criticism. So Paul has said things like, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. That is made right before God, be made righteous. Chapter 2, verse 16. Paul goes on to say that those trying to rely on the law, that is for salvation, they said they're under a curse. Chapter 3, verse 10. You see, it's not the law itself that's the problem. Paul is not saying... Get rid of the law. Rather, he's saying, you must not rely on the law to be saved. In fact, Paul explicitly rejects that kind of, oh, let's just chuck out the law, a lawlessness, as he writes to the church in Corinth and the church in Thessalonica. He's again and again saying that kind of lawlessness, he says, you must not do that. Being saved by grace, you don't respond with lawlessness. Scholars like to call that antinomianism. And that essentially means you, you, you've been saved, you've been justified through faith, and, but now you have, oh, we, we just like live as we please. We've got no obligation to the law at all. There's no standard. We, we have faith. We're saved. Absolutely no problem. We can live as we want. But Paul rejects that again and again in his letters, that lawlessness, that rejection of the law after knowing God's grace. And rather what Paul does, again and again, he just upholds both grace, the promise, and also the law. He holds them together and he requires us to understand both, not as mutually opposed, but holding them both in tension. Understanding the purpose for each. Well, we see it here. And the gospel of the Lord Jesus and the gospel church of the Lord Jesus. They require both. Now the law and the promises or the grace of God have very different functions as we'll see. But the thing is, one does not dismiss the other. So if you look at verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not, Paul says. And we're going to see how, just by going through the four, really, the four questions that the passage poses really. Um, have a look at them, they're down on your sheet there. What the law doesn't do, I think we need to be clear on that, and that's what Paul firstly kind of makes obvious. And then he says, why the law was added? Which is a good question. Then the big question in the centre of the passage. Is the law therefore opposed to the promise of God? I'm just trying to create a question out of that end. It's just how applying that, applying that knowledge to basically how to live as a Christian as the end, at the end. How do we live with regard to the law? So let's quickly go through those points if we can. Firstly, what the law doesn't do. And Paul begins answering that question of verse 21, but firstly by making sure his readers, us, we're clear what the law is, is, is not required to do, has never been kind of made to do. And he turns to an example, you see that there in those first few verses, an example of everyday life, if you like, that of human contracts. Many of you have got contracts for your work. But that also of covenants, of wills. So he points out in verse 15 that once a covenant is agreed, 
it's difficult to set that aside or to, to make it void. And Paul is actually using the word there for legal will, which is a kind of helpful example. And he's stating the obvious. You know, if your parents, and I guess many of our parents, will have written their wills, yeah? And I don't know how many siblings you have. They might have said, like, you get that proportion, you get that proportion, and you, however you said it. But it's covenanted. It's, it's in a will. And Paul's point is that the agreement is binding. It doesn't matter what changes. The will can't change. So, for example, if you know, sadly your parents die and, and the will is put in place, what happens in the interim period if, if let's say, one of my siblings becomes infinitely wealthy, you know, uh, gets a great promotion, does so well on the stock market, and is an incredibly wealthy man, and yet then I fall into utter poverty? Does that, do the circumstances of our lives change the nature of that contract, that covenant, that will? No. It can't be void in that way. If, if the split says, you know, between my two brothers, 33, 33, whatever, you know, a third each, then that is what it will be. And Paul gives the illustration in verse 15 to help us see that Despite the promises coming to Abraham, as he says there first, um, as we'll see in 16, the law, that is coming 430 years later, as he shows there, it doesn't set aside, it doesn't null and void the previous covenant or, or the will made between God and his people through Abraham and the promise of blessing and grace that came through that. And if you see, if that were the case, as Paul argues, if the law was given to Moses, and that was the trump card, if you like, that, that did away with the promises of God given to Abraham, well, then God would have, firstly, he would have changed his mind, which is a big issue uh, theologically, but, but also God would have decided we would no longer need a saviour. It would mean that our means of salvation was now by, well, doing stuff. We'd have to go, you know, juggling before God or you know, works of the law. We would not be then a recipient of the promise. But if the law had this function, if by doing good things we, we could save ourselves, it wouldn't add anything to grace, to the gospel promises given to Abraham. Rather, it would set aside those promises. And that is what Paul is saying in these early verses here. He's saying, promise and law, they are mutually exclusive. If you give uh, if I give you something because of what I have promised, it's nothing to do with what you have done. Karen received that gift, not because of anything that she'd done, but rather because I promised. And she was a recipient of grace. Likewise, if I give you something because you have done something, it's, it's not because of my promise. They're, they're, if you like, mutually opposite. They're opposites. And Paul's point is simple here. As you get to the end of this section, he's saying either something comes by grace or by works. Verse 18, if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. They are mutually exclusive. But God, in his great grace, gave it to Abraham through that promise. So to summarise that, what the law doesn't do, it doesn't set aside the promises of God given to Abraham back in Genesis 15. They are not dependent on the law. 
God has promised blessings through a covenant with Abraham. It was established by God and it was ratified, if you read Genesis 15, but through the, you walk through, or Abraham had to walk through, the, the dead corpses of animals split in half either side. It was a serious covenant. But it was a gracious promise from God. The promise that there, it was that there would be a great number of God's people in God's place, enjoying his blessing forever. These promises, of course, did not, um, however, come about in Abraham's life. But through, as we see in verse 16, through the life of the, the seed, and Paul makes it clear, namely through Jesus Christ. And Paul is simply saying that the law has a different purpose. It was never given 430 years after the promise, as a means for us to be saved of receiving those covenant blessings. So why does Paul need to make clear what the law doesn't do? Well, I think it's this reason. I think it's because in our hearts, each of us, I think, are tempted to trust at some point in our own efforts before God. Oh, I think many of us are very clear at the beginning, on the outset, you know, I need to trust solely in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross as that gift of grace for my salvation. But isn't it so easy, isn't it, to slip into, ah, well, you know, I just need to start doing a bit of juggling before God. I need to do a few things, works of the law, in order to make myself feel like I'm accepted before God. And in reality, all the juggling that we do, all the works of the law that we do, what do they make us feel? Well, painfully insecure at times, don't they? When you start juggling for your salvation, you have no assurance, do you? And I think you either go one way or the other. You either go to a kind of a place of despair that you're never going to be good enough for God, or you go to the other side, you get a sense of pride. Hey, look what I've done, God. So what do we need to know before we move on? We need to know that the law cannot coexist with the promise as a means of salvation. That is not the purpose of the law, as we will now see. So to our second point, why therefore was the law added? And the simple answer comes in verse 19. Have a look at it. It just says that it was added because of our transgressions. So the law wasn't given to Moses to tell us about how to get into to heaven to be with God for eternity. The main purpose of the law, given 430 years after the promise to Abraham, that covenant with Abraham between Abraham and God, the main purpose of the law is to show our need to trust in that promise, that our need for a saviour. The law of God exposes, I guess, in each of our hearts and lives that we, that we have a major problem. We are unable to to live that perfect life that we need to live if we're going to be with a perfect, righteous, holy God. We recognise, don't we, as we examine the law, that we fall very short of God's standards to be with him for eternity. So why was the law added? It was added because of our transgressions, because of our sin, until the seed... That is, Christ, our Saviour, came. Now, at the end of verse 19 and verse 20, we perhaps could go to, leave to the question time. 
It is probably the most hotly debated verse and a half of the New Testament. Who is the mediator? Well, in one commentary alone, I read 16 different uh, theories on that um, and explanations. Thankfully, many had the humility to say, well, we're not totally sure uh, who they're referring to there. But most agree that that little cryptic kind of nature of those couple of verses doesn't really take away from the main thrust of what Paul is saying. We're going to move on. Ask about that later if you want to. Let me summarise so far though, if I can. The, The law doesn't set aside the promises of God. Even though the law came after. The covenant promises given to Abraham, they stand. Uh, And the law and the promise have different purposes. They are mutually opposed to each other. Yes, they are. If they're believed to have the same function, that is to save someone. But the law was never added to save us. But to show us our need for a saviour. And so therefore, Paul begins, verse 21, as we've seen right at the beginning. Is the law opposed to the promise of God? Absolutely not. But why? See, they are opposed if you rely on them, both of them, to save you. They are opposites because there's one trust in the promises of salvation, which comes through Jesus Christ. Faith in the seed of of verse 16. And one makes you work your way to heaven. But the law was not given to impart life. As we see in verse 21, Paul makes the point that you would, you, if you were justified by your works, and if that were the case, well, we would all just be, we'd be, we'd be in despair. The law was not given to impart life. We clearly can't be given eternal life through what we do. Even Paul, who was once a very religious Pharisee, the, the law keeper of law keepers, you might call him. Even, in, even he in Romans 7, in a kind of just an opening of his heart, just says, well, even he still envied, even he still coveted and struggled with his sin. See, the law and promise, they, they function in completely different ways. And the law just enabled him to see how how short he fell of God's perfect standards, how morally helpless he was before God. And that's Paul's point about Scripture in verse 22, literally saying, as we open up our Bibles, Scripture imprisons all the world to sin. That's what he's literally saying there. Now, as you read your Bibles, it's interesting, which is why actually many liberal churches ignore portions of the Bible. But as you read your Bibles, you realise that you're not just simply a sinner, but rather you're a prisoner to sin, unable to rid yourself of sin. And that is the purpose of the law. The purpose of when we get time each day to open up our Bibles and enjoy hearing God speak to us. As we read of the perfection of God, we see in the Bible that we don't only fall short of God's standards, But more than that, we are completely under the control of sin. We are powerless to save ourselves from the consequences of our sin. That is eternal condemnation. The basic point here is we require rescue. We require rescue. See, the law and the Bible only have the power to expose our need of rescue. Our utter weakness. 
It can't save us, though. And Paul summarizes this point as you look at the verse, at the end of verse 22. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So that what was promised, that is salvation, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. So the law, you see, it doesn't oppose the promise of salvation. They oppose if they are given the same function. But the law rather supports the promise of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because it points us to our need. The law points us to our need of a saviour, Jesus Christ. So think about what you read in the Bible. When you open up the Bible, perhaps each morning, whenever you do that in the day. Do you naturally resist the bits of the Bible where you know it's going to expose your heart, your mind? Or you might like particular stories, but when it gets a bit kind of heavy, we'll just sort of miss that day out, shall we? Shall we move on? Because the Bible does that very, very often, doesn't it? It exposes our sin, our hearts, our minds. You might even, as a result, think, oh, well, I've done that a few times and now it's getting a bit too heavy, so I'll just put my Bible down altogether. I I won't do my devotions or quiet times or whatever you call them. I won't turn to God in prayer because I'm just going to feel morally bankrupt each time I do it. And I don't like that feeling. I don't like to be so brought low. In some ways, you might, if you've grown up in that kind of church, you might even fear the kind of finger pointing of the fundamental church which says, you've done that wrong and that wrong and that wrong and you're going to be condemned for it again and again and again. We need to know how we are to live, both in God's love, but at the same time, whilst not ignoring God's law, respecting their different functions. And that leads us very quickly to our last point. How do we live with regard to the law? And Paul turns here, just in these last verses, he uses two metaphors to show how the law should function. First uh, metaphor is the law is described as a guard. We are held as prisoners by us. We see that there? And the second metaphor, verse uh, verse 24, the law is, is there put in charge. You see that there? Literally, the word used there is, is our tutor. The law is a guard and a tutor. What's he saying there? They both remove our freedom. Both are impersonal. By one we're treated as children. By one we're treated as slaves. And Paul is there kind of exposing really what is fundamental to a kind of law-based religion. That is what it's like, isn't it? We're bound to it. We're under it. It's impersonal. It's a kind of reward-punishment system. If you do that, great. If you don't do that, bang. You get punished. And what does that make you feel like? You are anxious the whole time. If you you function in a kind of a law-based religion, then you're worried. Have you met that certain performance the whole time? Am I right with God? Have you done enough Hail Marys, for example? Did you miss prayers at at the mosque? They're the worries for, for, for Muslims. Or did you deny the existence of God in every living moment of that day? which is the worry for atheists. 
But the tutor metaphor, interestingly, in verse 24, points beyond itself a little bit. You see, the law was given to point us to, to lead us to, to tutor us toward, so that we see our need for a saviour. So that we might be justified by faith through that saviour. And that is the gospel promise. Establishing the covenant given to Abraham in Genesis 15. And the law points to that promise. And do you, do you see the distinctions between kind of a law-based religion and the gospel faith that we have in Jesus Christ? It's amazing, isn't it? It's not a life of kind of, of confinement, but one of freedom. As Paul says in chapter 2, verse 8. Faith in Christ isn't impersonal, as a law-based religion is. Rather, it is a relationship with God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Does it suppress us and keep us like a child or a slave? No. It helps us mature in our faith. It enables us to flourish in God's love. So how do we live with regard to the law? We need to realise that though we might default to that kind of fundamental church thing of all law and no love... We need to grasp the fact that we can never juggle our way to glory. We can never do enough to meet God's standards. But at the same time, we must grasp the fact that all love and no law denies the existence of a perfect and holy God. And it denies our our need for a saviour. See, the gospel church, and I pray that Christchurch Hillsfield is a gospel church and flourishes as a gospel church. The gospel church takes hold of the truth from God's word that salvation has come through a promise and a covenant in Genesis 15 and is is ratified essentially through Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins in our place, that gift of grace. And when we receive that grace, it ought to change everything. As we saw last week. Our hearts should be filled with such gratitude and a desire to please our saviour. And be like our saviour. And the way that we do that we need to obey the law. Now it doesn't save us. Paul's been clear about that the whole way through. But it does point us to our need for a saviour. And it also in obeying the law. As much as we possibly can, we become like our Saviour. And in obeying the law, becoming like our Saviour, we honour our Saviour. So how do we live with regard to the law? We live as those justified by faith. Obeying the law as much as we possibly can. But our motivation is not just kind of fearful compliance, as one scholar put it. Our motivation is... The fact that we've been justified by faith. And we can have grateful joy to obey the law, to honour our Saviour. Law and grace work together in the gospel church. They do. The law painfully exposes the seriousness of my sin and your sin in our hearts and lives. Let me quote to finish though. But unless we see how helpless and sinful we are, The promise of salvation will not be exhilarating and liberating. Unless we know how big our debt is, we cannot have any idea of how great Christ's payment was. 
If we think that we are not all that bad, the idea of grace will never change us. So are the law and the promise opposed? They are if if you think they're trying to both save us. But the law was given to us to show us as we really are, warts and all. And it points us to Christ and our need for Christ. Christ who completely obeyed the law and then reached out his arms on the cross and took every bit of punishment that our failings of the law deserved so that we might receive that promise given initially to Abraham fulfilled in Christ and will one day see all the fruits of that promise as we meet Christ face to face being one of God's eternal people and there was a cheer upstairs (laughs) and we say amen down here amen Why don't you turn to the person beside you? We've got a minute and see if there's any questions that you might like to ask.